Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Okay, everybody, you know if something comes up for me repeatedly that it's going to hit the podcast. So this is something that's been coming up a ton, and it even came up in uh, this group chat that I have with some colleagues, and so here we are. It is the concept that training less is actually better than training more, that less is actually more when it comes to dog training. And how can that possibly make sense if we are trying to get from A to B in our training? We should want to be training frequently, working towards our goals. And yeah, all of that is true. I want you to be training your dogs. I like training my dogs. But when you actually go to your training space and sit down to work on an actual thing, a problem, a project, a whatever, doing fewer reps per session is much smarter than doing a bunch of reps. Really rookie move is to do like five straight minutes of training and then evaluate it. The smarter thing to do is to do much shorter bursts of training, evaluate and then train again, or evaluate and go back to the drawing board. So I'm going to go through kind of what this problem is, what this problem starts to look like so that maybe you can identify it. You can know, because I'm sure that the question is, how do I know if I'm training too much? And then we'll look at the solutions. Okay. So the problem of overtraining is essentially that you will be sacrificing quality reps for quantity reps. If I do 50 reps of something, but only 25 of them were good most likely the first 25 were the better ones or perhaps the middle 25 of those 50, but the last 25 are almost never it. Okay. So you may as well have stopped while you were ahead, essentially. So when we sacrifice those quality reps for more reps, what we're getting is actually more reinforcement in for things that we don't want to see continue. And The other thing that happens and the reason sometimes those last reps are not the good ones is because the dog fatigues either mentally or physically. And when the dog fatigues mentally or physically, you lose quality. You might lose form. You might lose enthusiasm. You want to only have super high quality reps happening in your training. If you're going to do 50 total reps of something, I'd like that to be 10 separate sessions with five reps each that are high, high quality rather than one session of 50 or two sessions of 25. And of course, I'm going to get into some specifics as far as, you know, is this different when we're acquiring a new behavior versus is this different when we are proofing a behavior or preparing a behavior for competition? Sure. Yes. There are always kind of differences that come up, but the overarching theme here that less is more applies across the board. And this has been true for pretty much everybody that I've talked to who is, um, who is in this field. So when you lose enthusiasm or form and you reinforce reps that kind of maybe meet your criteria, but are not as high quality as the other reps, this sneaky little thing shows up called the matching law. And the matching law essentially states that something that is reinforced 
will happen again the number of times it has been reinforced. So if you reinforce a sloppy sit or something like that 50 times, you can expect to get another 50 sloppy sits over the course of your training. You want to be sure that you are only reinforcing what you want to see continue because that matching law thing will bite you in the ass. Here's the other thing is that when we as trainers train repeatedly, okay, so like if I go out and I'm doing something multiple times a day, for instance, like let's say I'm working a weave pull entry multiple times throughout a day. I am only ever doing that because I'm on some kind of time crunch. I'm under some sort of duress. And the reason is I know it's not good training and I'm only ever doing it out of desperation because I'm trying to get ready for something or something like that. And guess what? Guess when your worst training happens? When you're under duress, right? So the worst training that you ever do is when you're stressed about it. You're, you've got a trial entry. You know your dog's not ready for the trial and you are pushing to get those quality reps. Or flip side, you know, my other world, behavior work, if I've got a deadline with a client because they've only paid for a certain amount of work with me. And so I'm pushing for more quantity of this work so that it gets done within a certain amount of time. I'm probably also getting lower quality work overall. And it would be better if they did half as much work that was twice the quality. Another really, really important thing is that if you are being a good trainer and you're splitting the way that you need to split, then you don't want to spend a lot of reps at a lower approximation. You don't want to spend a lot of reps at those lower levels because you will get stuck there. It will keep you there. If you do 15 sessions of, or even 15 reps in one session of one specific weave pull entry, you're just staying at that weave pull entry. You want to be pushing Anytime the dog is successful, essentially, but we'll get into that in the solutions. So the problem is that you get stuck, you sacrifice quality, you fatigue your learner, which will lead to loss of enthusiasm and loss of form. And you will make more mistakes because you're probably under duress. So what is the solution then? Because I am a solutions girl. I am not interested necessarily in, I mean, of course, I like to harp on problems and complain. Everybody does. But then I want solutions. I want answers. So here are some practical solutions. One of my favorite things to do, especially in the initial early acquisition of behavior, so let's say I'm trying to teach something new, is to set a timer. I teach this in my shaping class. I teach to set a 30-second timer, train for 30 seconds, and then review. See what happened, see what worked, see what didn't, and make changes before you go for another 30 seconds. And I don't want you to train for more than two straight minutes on that thing that you're doing. Now, do as I say, not as I do. Of course, I have training videos of me training one thing um, with my dog for four straight minutes because I didn't set a timer. And lo and behold, if I break that session down, I should have set a timer because I had you know, a section in there that went really well. And then there are reps in there that I didn't want to pay. So setting that timer and one of my students brilliantly just purchased a an hourglass, just a table hourglass. It's a 30 second hourglass for this reason, because she didn't want the dog to alert to the timer itself. And that is so smart. So I love the hourglass idea. If the timer thing is not really going to work because maybe the thing you're doing takes the dog a while to do, 
then you can just decide this is how many reps I'm going to do maximum. And you always decide maximum and you don't push there if things are not going well. You know, you don't go, okay, I'm going to do five reps of this no matter what happens. If you say I'm going to do five reps of this and the first two are crap, you better stop. Don't push for three. Don't have three bad reps, right? So what you want to do instead is say, okay, my max reps are five. If I go for three and they're all three brilliant, honestly, I'm going to tell you, I'm not even going to go to five. I'm going to stop right there. Increase criteria. Because if the dog gets three in a row perfectly, again, I don't want to stay on that lesser approximation. So that's why I don't love the number of reps idea. I don't think it's as good as the timer idea, but they're both imperfect because both of them, if things are not going great, you need to stop. And if things are going perfectly, you need to stop. <laughs> I know, terrible, uh, terrible for me to not have a perfect solution for everybody, but these are things to try. Use a timer, especially if you are a big overtrainer, if that's your huge problem that you will look at your video and go, how did I do this for 10 straight minutes? Use a timer. If you look at your video and you go, wow, how did I do 35 reps of something? The timer would help because you probably can't get that done in 30 seconds, but also just count out your reinforcers. And when they're gone, they're gone. Now, are things different as far as how long I'm going to train in acquisition versus proofing? Of course. So difference being acquisition is I'm teaching a new behavior. I'm acquiring a new behavior. Proofing is I have trained this behavior and I am altering elements surrounding the behavior to kind of test it and push its fluency. Hannah Brannigan says fluency enhancement instead of proofing, which I really love because I have like PTSD attached to the word proofing from my early training days. But if I'm proofing something for the ring, I probably know the specific question I wanna ask that dog. Okay, so like, let's say I'm uh, proofing my dog's ability to send to the backside of a jump. And my specific question is, can he do that into a wall with me facing this specific area? That's the question I'm going to ask. If I ask that question and he answers it correctly, y'all, I'm going to stop. I'm going to pay him and I'm going to stop and evaluate and, and figure out which questions I need to ask next. If I ask him that question and he gets it wrong, I'm also going to stop and evaluate and ask and, and figure out how to ask him that question differently. So repeating it though. So if he gets it wrong and I just stop him and ask him again, not smart training. You might do that once, but if he gets it wrong twice, remember when I said, if you're only going to do five, but they get the first two wrong, don't try for three, right? If he gets it wrong twice, I'm certainly not going to ask him a third time. I'm going to make sure that I stop and get smart at that point. I'm just going to put a tiny caveat in here that I and no one else knows what specifically leads to injuries and dog agility in the baby phases of starting to be researched. And there's way more that we don't know than what we do know. But I will tell you anecdotally that I've seen a trend with certain people um, who I've, you know, observed or known a long time, who's, who all of their dogs tend to get hurt. And when I watch them train, they're training like this. They're just sending to that backside again and again and again until that dog gets it right. So don't put that stress on their body. Think of them as having a finite number of jumps in their body that they can do in their life and don't waste any, right? Same with behavior work. Let's say that I am working on the dog's ability to stay with me and respond to cues in the proximity of another dog. And let's say I have set a timer. I'm going to do this for a minute. 
because it takes a while for the other dog to kind of rotate back through my space. I'm going to do this for a minute and then I'm going to stop. But in the first 20 seconds, my dog has an error. He barks and lunges at the other dog. Then I know that I need to adjust something and going for the rest of that minute may not be smart. So <laughs> essentially you're all questions lead back to stop early, do less, because if I get started and it's perfect, I'm going to reinforce and then I'm going to figure out how to make it a little bit harder. And if I get started and the dog can't do it, I'm going to stop and I'm going to figure out how to make it easier, <laughs> right? Until it's kind of this, this funny flow chart that just flows back into itself. Because if I get started and the dog is wrong and he, he tells me he doesn't know the answer to this, I'm going to alter something so that he does know the answer, answer to this. And then He'll tell me, yes, I know the answer. And then I'm again, not going to repeat. I'm going to change it again to ask him if he knows the answer to this even harder question. And then it comes back to, and I'm not going to do this for a day. I'm going to cut off the number of reps that I'm going to do. A really common way to do this is to give the dog what I'm going to call a trivial break during training. So you do like a few reps of something and then you station them and then you work again. I will do that, especially in the early acquisition of behavior. I'll do something for 30 seconds. I'll station them. I'll look at my video. I'll think about what I want to change. And then I'll do another 30 seconds. But I wouldn't do that if this were something that it wouldn't take those trivial, trivial breaks as often if it was more like, I just have 30 minutes to train. And I know my dog can't go for 30 minutes, but I want to go for 30 minutes because that's the only time I have this week. So I'm just going to take these trivial breaks to break it up. Don't do it like that. If you have 30 minutes to train, spend 25 minutes planning total and five minutes training. That is way smarter for you to do. More planning, less actual training will always work out better for you. This is one reason I love to train with other people. I love to discuss what we're doing give something a try, put the dogs up, discuss again. That way it's less time on the dog on the field, less time doing reps, more time making sure that every single rep you do is quality. A substantial break is probably a little bit different. So I kind of think of substantial versus trivial breaks. If I'm working on a project and I want to work on it twice in a day, which again, I need to ask myself, am I doing that because I'm under a time crunch or under some kind of duress? Because if that's the answer, if yes, I'm doing it because of that, then I'm not going to let myself do it twice. I'm only going to do it once. But let's just say maybe I'm in an online class and I want to get as much feedback as I can. And I know that that's the position that a lot of my students find themselves in is they want to get as much feedback for the time that they have with me as they can. And so they maybe want to train twice a day. First, and this is a whole other podcast don't do both of them without getting your feedback in between. So if you are actually submitting this for feedback, do not go train your dog a second session without getting that feedback. Your instructor will love you so much more if you wait for that information before you go out and train again. But anyway, let's say that's not the case. Let's say you are not doing this under duress, but you're just very excited about whatever it is that you're training and you want to do it twice. Or maybe you have you do have that window today that you can train today and you're not going to be able to train the rest of the week, or maybe the weather is going to get bad and this is an outside project. And so you want to do more reps today. I understand all of that. That's where I'm going to insert substantial breaks. I'm going to do a training session in the morning, and then I'm going to go inside and work for several hours. And then am I, during which my dog is just laying down doing nothing. And then I'm going to go back out and train again. So 
those substantial breaks can be inserted if you really do feel like you need to get a lot done today. But if you are in an online class and you take that substantial break in between and you don't get that feedback, don't do that second session. Do something else instead. And again, I'll probably need to put a podcast out about getting the most out of online training. That'd probably be a good one. Coming back to that splitting question as well. So another solution. If you're splitting finely enough, if you're really examining your training and splitting and staying on an approximation only as long as you need to because you are increasing difficulty so incrementally that it's barely noticeable, then you're not going to stay in one spot. You're not going to get stuck and you're not going to do too many reps at one place. So once again, the problem is that you will sacrifice quality uh, for your quantity of reps. You will induce fatigue and loss of enthusiasm in your learner. You will make more mistakes because you're training under duress often, or just because you're training too long and you also will mentally fatigue and you will get stuck. The solution is timing yourself or deciding max number of reps, paying attention to kind of whether or not you're in acquisition or proofing phases. I also like the solution of having more projects so that you're not just laser focused on one thing. It's so much better for dogs to have a lot of different things that they're doing and working on. Just like, just like us most of the time, I think that, you know, if all I did was focus on weave pulse or the running dog walk for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, I'm really maybe losing the diversity in what my dog and I can do together. And the training may lose some enrichment as well. So think about having multiple projects, take breaks, know whether you're taking substantial or trivial breaks. A trivial break is just you're stationed or you're created in the training space for a minute and then I take you back out. And a substantial break is a real break. Dog went and took a nap, chewed on something. Make sure that you're increasing criteria when the dog is successful. That is good splitting. Increasing that criteria when the dog is successful so that you don't get stuck on those lower approximations doing a million reps. Doing a lot of reps at a phase that the behavior doesn't look the way it's going to look is really not smart of us. Okay, so staying with you know, a wide open channel of weave poles, for instance, for months and months, that's not what weave poles look like. So staying there is not training weave poles at a certain point. Same thing for, you know, anything else that we might talk about. Same thing for luring healing with a cookie in the dog's nose. If you're going to lure healing or, you know, any other kind of approximation of healing that is not healing. If you do, you know, 2000 steps of healing like that, you stopped healing at some point because you didn't, progress. You didn't increase your criteria. And then again, spend at least twice as much time planning as you spend training and you will see such results. Every single time I suggest to a student to just train less or just train for shorter bursts, they fight it and they fight me. And every single time that they actually commit to training that way, they see the results and they understand what I meant. So please give it a try. Okay, and here are your Patreon questions. The first one comes from Jane, who writes, I have a new year and a half old Border Collie Australian cattle dog mix and a five-year-old Border Collie lab mix. Pepper, the five-year-old, so that's the Border Collie lab cross, is starting to do a lot of needs slash demand barking while we visit my parents and their two dogs. At her home, she does this occasionally in anticipation of her regular evening walk, but during longer one to two month stays at my parents, her barking steadily escalates over the duration of our stay to staring at me and barking throughout the day whenever I turn to talk to someone, look at my phone, etc. She's also displaying more barky reactivity in the car than usual. She's getting the same amount of exercise and enrichment that she would at our home. 
She gets along reasonably well with all of their dogs and humans. I'm stumped about the cause and how to respond to her in the moment and more holistically. I get the feeling that she may want more one-on-one attention, but since I'm visiting because of family care obligations, it's a challenge. In the moment, I'll either send her to another room with a chewy or direct her to a station and treat her periodically. While this creates some quiet, it does not lower the intensity of her staring. She drools a ton and shows no signs of relaxing. Any suggestions you might have for training more quiet alternative behavior or addressing this from a whole picture perspective would be really welcome. So Jane, so this question really is about your five-year-old dog. And I will say that if this is a brand new behavior, And it's not a brand new context. So I don't know if you've been taking her to visit your parents her entire life and this is new. And if that's the case and this is not a new context, is a new behavior, then I would treat it like a medical problem until proven otherwise. If it is a new context and therefore new behavior, I still think that you would be wise to rule out medical. And so that would just involve a very thorough talking to your veterinarian, examination, blood work, et cetera. Then I would really look at the consequences. Behavior is driven by consequences. She's doing this because it's being reinforced. So you need to think about how you're reinforcing it. And I am not telling you to ignore it because ignoring it will only frustrate both of you but you do need to respond to her in a way that is not reinforcing. And so if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, you've heard me talk about responding to behaviors like this, but responding in a way that the dog doesn't really like. Being given a chewy, being put on a station for food, all of that is probably pretty positive for her. She probably likes that. So instead, I want you to respond to her in ways that she isn't interested in having. And that's going to really depend on her. I don't know what lights her fire. I don't know um, what she's interested in. And I also don't know what she does not like. But my dog, Iggy, her demand barking is best handled with petting because she's never asking for petting. She's always asking for food (laughs) when she's demanding. So I just pet her. And because there's no risk in her, really, really no risk in her biting me about that, then that works really well for us. And every single time I do it, she goes, oh, fine. She's broken. She's not working. I have talked about this concept many, many times on the podcast as being the milk, because that's a weird metaphor for if you waved your hands under an automatic faucet and nothing came out, you'd have an extinction burst. You would wave your hands faster. You would, depending on your temperament, you might just go to another faucet or you might get violent with the faucet, whatever. But if milk comes out, you're more likely to quit trying that faster. And the reason you are is because you go, oh, well, clearly that's not going to give me water, which is what I wanted. Whereas if nothing comes out and that's the ignoring, you're going to keep trying because you might get water. So think about it like that, Jane, and best of luck. The next one comes from Rosie who writes, last summer I adopted a second dog, an 18-month border collie Kelpie with zero basic training and pretty extreme leash reactivity. After doing a bit of remedial socialization, I've learned that he actually has really great social skills around dogs when off lead, although he does come on quite strongly initially. So I'm pretty sure the reactivity happens out of frustration. This frustration and lack of self-regulation is also expressed in other ways. For example, he is a nightmare on the lead and is very grabby with food and other items I'm holding. We're working on all of these scenarios in training sessions, but I was mainly wondering if you had any recommendations for exercises we can do specifically to help him manage his frustration better. So Rosie, this is such a common common kind of suite of, of behaviors to act 
out in big ways to, I don't even like the phrase act out, but to act in big ways with big feelings to kind of acquire relief from those feelings that the dog has. And if you think about these high drive working type dogs, Border Collies, Kelpies, they are designed to act big on their environment and get big results. And so of course, then if we want them to walk nicely on leash next to us and be perfect, we're going to need to really convince them and make them that worth their while. You say last summer you adopted a dog with zero basic training. So what I want to know is how much training does the dog have now? Because what you need is training. Everybody wants there to be kind of a solution here, some kind of trick that I do, but the trick is training. The trick is that the dog learns that responding to you is his best bet in all of these situations. You've done some good work as far as that remedial socialization. I'm very glad to hear that the dog actually has good social skills. Now ask the dog to behave himself around other dogs. He's not afraid of them. He can respond socially appropriately to them. Ask him to do that on leash and make that worth his while with reinforcement. I also did a couple of episodes on self-regulation that you'll definitely want to check out. And I am running Worked Up at FDSA in the April term, and you might check that out as well. Next one is from Kristen, who writes, was discussing adult onset, acutely developed separation anxiety with a coworker, and wondered if you have any experience with it. Is it likely there was a low-grade anxiety that was triggered by an event such as a noise phobia? Yes, it is likely that there was a traumatic event um, to trigger that. We know that separation anxiety is one of those behavior problems that can develop in adulthood and even later adulthood if there's a traumatic event attached. Really, really frequently in my caseload, it has been a noise event like a smoke alarm or something like that that went off when the dog was alone. Always the dog is going to be kind of predisposed to these behaviors if they're going to develop it after one experience like that. But basically, the most important thing is to just treat it because you don't know what happened. So you want to treat it. And if we're being good professionals, we always rule out medical problems first. This would be a very important case to do that in if the dog is an adult or older really, really important to rule out medical. If the dog is actually old, I would be very, very thorough in my rule out. The dog is over like eight or nine. I would be extremely thorough. But essentially, you don't know, so you want to treat it. But yes, it is, it is safe for us to speculate that there was a traumatic event, and often it's related to noise. Okay, I've got one from Bass who writes, first of all, I have been binge listening to your podcast since I discovered it. Thank you for sharing so much with us. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad that you like it. Uh, He continues, I've learned so much, but I also have about a million questions. Let's start with this one. How to break up play between dogs. My five month old dachshund Diego loves to play and has made a lot of friends in our neighborhood. I want to let him play. Uh, but it's hard to get him to move on afterwards. If it's a lunch walk, for example, I have to be back in time for work. He is off leash during play. His recall is pretty reliable when the play has calmed down a bit. However, after your podcast on recall, I don't really want to do that anymore to avoid his recall being the cue for his fun to end. When I put his leash on after play, he will just sit down on the grass and not move, especially when the other dogs are still in sight. Throwing some kibble to sniff in the grass does not help most of the time. Any suggestions? 
so of course there's a lot that you can do here and I'm so glad that he's a nice puppy that likes to play with other dogs and that's wonderful try to set up those play dates where you have enough time to allow the play to wind down so that removing him is not so punishing and that you can call him reward him with food and take him away if you don't have a lot of time don't stop and let him play keep moving keep moving along bring very high value food to reward him for staying with you and moving along with you. Teach him now that he doesn't always get to play. Um, a lot of these young dogs who really love playing with other dogs develop leash reactivity as adults because they get really frustrated about not being able to play with every single dog that they see. So it's an important lesson too, that he sees his friends and then moves right along. Not a problem as far as I'm concerned to ask him to come and then put some steady leash, steady leash pressure on. I'm not saying pop him or pull him. I'm just saying keep walking and keep your leash anchored to your body. And he is small and you are big and he will come along and then you feed him when he comes along. And then really get into some good obedience training, get into a positive reinforcement based obedience class and really teach him a lot of skills so that you can engage those skills in these situations. And last one this week comes from Caroline, who writes, I have two lovely male border collies, a six-month-old and a 15-month-old. My older boy recently got a chemical castration implant, and my baby boy is fully intact. The older pup over the past two months has returned to marking in my house, furniture, curtains, etc., again, which is driving me crazy. Um, and Caroline does mention that the younger puppy is not marking. He did this when he was six months old, and I quickly got a handle on it just by interrupting him. This time around, I'm using proper cleaners where he marks and interrupting him when I catch him, but it's not working at all. I'm worried it's going to become a literal pissing contest as my young male matures. Any tips for nipping marking in the bud? Yeah, so it will become a pissing contest. So you do want to be careful. The chemical castration and any other kind of castration does not always handle this problem. Number one, actually treat it like a house training problem because it is actually treat it like an inappropriate urination problem. It's not different because it's an intact male. What would you do if a puppy was peeing in the house? Would you keep giving the puppy access to the house? No, you would not. You would cut down access. If you're being smart, you would cut off access. The puppy would have more confinement and would be taken outside and would be reinforced with food. Anyway, in my world, it would for peeing in the appropriate place. And then to just kind of as an added tip, I use a belly band on these guys. A lot of times my male dogs never go through this, but sometimes they do. And usually it's, you know, one of the girls in the house has a heat cycle and he just loses his mind for a second and pees on the wall. Then he wears a belly band for several days. The first, most of them in most border collies that I've ever met for sure pee in a belly band and are horrified and never lift their leg in the house again because they are absolutely mortified that they peed their pants. So that's also another thing. So when you kind of start to give him a little bit more freedom in the house, and I'm talking, he would be on a leash or in a crate for me if he was going to pee in the house. And then anytime he wasn't on a leash or in a crate, he'd wear a belly band. And then if there's pee in your belly band, you know that he's not ready to have that kind of freedom. So best of luck with that. Definitely keep on top of it. And definitely when you go outside, walk him up to vertical surfaces and say, you can pee here or tell them whatever your P there cue is, mine is hurry and reward. And then when you're walking him, you got to watch him. And this is actually probably the key that I see a lot of people miss is that they're blindly walking their males around and their males are peeing on literally everything. Don't let him pee on everything. Teach him that everything is not available to him to be peed on. So walk past a 
lamp post and he starts to sniff it you tell him huh not there and you you can um tap his side or you can tug on his collar and you can reinforce him for moving closer to you don't allow him to pee there then walk him up to a bush and tell him to pee there and then reinforce him for doing that institute and work on this really hard with your six-month-old because it will happen teach them early that they just don't get to pee on every single vertical surface that exists and because if you do if you let them walk down the street pee on every single fence post mailbox lamp post everything i've even seen people let their dogs just pee on car tires if you're doing that and then you expect suddenly for them to think it's different when there's a roof over their head they won't right so really crack down on you're allowed to pee here and not there use a belly band use use some confinement i always say if you're going to act like an eight week old you get treated like one and uh best of luck caroline and that is it for this week thanks for listening thanks for listening please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review if you'd like to support this podcast head over to patreon.com slash radio you might even hear me answer your question on the show for more content like the stuff you heard here check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com Thank you.